Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In 1951, director Vincent Minnelli and star Gene Kelly gave the world a spectacular musical that took the genre to new heights. In 2019, Evan Williams gives us a hundred-proof bourbon sure to bring us back down to earth. The film is an American in Paris. The whiskey is Evan Williams' white label. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film Film and Whiskey Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic film and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we're looking at the 1951 film, An American in Paris. So, Brad, Brad and I always talk about the movies a little bit before we press record. Yeah. But in this case, we have not had any prior contact with each other about An American in Paris, which is a big deal because this is our first musical. Right. Um, you know, it's our first genre into – or foray into the genre right. and into Gene Kelly. And I'm yeah. really excited to start because I do love movie musicals. Brad, yeah. how do you feel about musicals? So this is actually – so I haven't seen An American in Paris, but I would say that – I have actually been introduced to the genre genre quite heavily. Okay. Um, This is something that I've seen a lot of Gene Kelly. Um, I've seen a lot of different musicals growing up. It's something my dad really loved. Mm -hmm. Um, He's a a really good singer himself, and so he always appreciated that. Yeah. Um, So this is a genre that I was really excited to see this, um, as it it really is one of the classics in the genre. Oh, absolutely. So what did you know about this movie prior to pressing play on it? Well, you see, it might have been about... <laughs> Did you... I mean, had you heard of it? Did you know anything about it? I didn't know anything about it, uh, so, other than the fact that it was a musical. Okay. So, I probably saw it when I was in high school. Okay. And I knew going into it that it had this extended ballet sequence at the end that was, like, really revered. Right. I knew it was going to be, like, 20 minutes of movie. Right. Um, and I knew Vincent Minnelli because some of my favorite movies he was the director of. Okay. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and, and say – Give me a list I, of movies I've I do never not heard of. think this is the best musical of all time. Okay. And for a long time, this was like the most highly regarded MGM musical, which yeah. was like – that was the studio that made the musicals. Right. My favorite musical of all time is Vincent Minnelli's Meet Me in St. Louis, okay. which is where he met his wife, Judy Garland. Ah. Um, and so I knew Minnelli. I knew some of his sort of directorial flourishes – I knew he used lots of color. I knew he liked to do a lot of blocking in his scenes. Right. Um, and then I also knew that right after this movie, Gene Kelly went and did Singing in the Rain, which he was using as a vehicle to try to top what happened in this movie. Because huh. the end of Singing in the Rain is another like 20-minute yeah. ballet sequence. Yeah. And so Gene Kelly uh, came right off of this movie and right into Singing in the Rain. So going into it, aside from being an American in Paris, <laughs> what were your expectations? 
You know, I it's Gene Kelly. Yeah. Um, he is just to me, he comes across so sincerely mm-hmm. in his roles. And I absolutely love that about Gene Kelly. And I think the scene that typifies that best is when he's singing with the children. Oh, absolutely. And we'll like, get into that because that's my favorite scene, too. Oh, it's the, so I got good. rhythm number. Yeah, yeah it's and, great. And that scene, like there's something about when you see adults interacting with children. Yeah. That I think you really see what that person kind of is all about, how they treat people that they consider less than them. Sure. And you see Gene Kelly, his sincerity just, it shines through in that moment. So I'm going to give, tip my hand a little bit. Okay. I think that I've been colored by all the stories that I've heard about Gene Kelly over the years because apparently he was like an absolute jerk in real life. Really? Yeah. And I think he, he's one of those people that has cultivated such a great persona that Mm -hmm. I look at him and I'm like, oh, Gene Kelly seems like a great guy. Apparently he was a jerk. Huh. And on the flip side, Fred Astaire, who was kind of like his primary competition, yeah. was supposed to be like great, just a great guy in real life. See, I had heard that before. I, For some reason in my head, I thought it was the other way around. I thought that Fred Astaire was the terrible human being. Yeah. And Gene Kelly was. But I take your word for the it. The crazy thing about it, too, is with Fred Astaire, we always have these images of him in like a tuxedo, yeah. you know, and he always seemed like, oh, like the highfalutin guy. Yeah. But he I, I don't think he was really like, like that. He reminds me more of like Frank Sinatra. <laughs> sure. Just because of Just wearing the tux. Like, always in a tux. Classy guy. Kind of, yeah. yeah. Whereas Gene Kelly always presented himself – like in this movie, he's, the, he's a the, painter. He's, he's walking around in a sweatshirt painter. with his sleeves rolled up, which this sounds dumb, but one of my favorite costumes in movie history is Gene Kelly in his like all white yeah. with his sleeves pushed up. Yeah. I think there's something about he, – he gave the genre a really masculine dancer. Yeah. You see his muscles. You know yeah. what I mean? Like he, he comes across as like a pretty – Macho guy. I wanted to talk about this at some point. Being a dancer Mm -hmm. is crazy. They are muscular. Oh, absolutely. They are strong. Like, I mean, some of the most impressive athletes I've ever seen. Sure. Gene Kelly really typifies that. I mean, he's just, he's so good. Yeah. And and I guess we can just kind of go out of order a little bit today and talk yeah. about our favorite performances because yeah. I don't think anyone's topping Gene Kelly in this movie. Yeah. I mean, it's it's his film. He yes. owns it. Yeah. Definitely my number one top performance. But what other performances did you mark down as ones that stuck out to you? Man, I really enjoyed, um, I can't think of his name now, but his friend that plays the piano and he has that piano sequence. Yeah, yeah. So Oscar Levant was Oscar his Oscar Levant. Yeah. So his he, name in the movie is Adam Yes. Yeah. So Adam in the movie, Oscar Levant, apparently was a close friend with the Gershwins. Mm-hmm. And so and he was a you know great piano player. And so he he kind of felt like he really channeled the Gershwins through the movie. Yeah. And I, I really enjoyed his performance a, a lot throughout that movie. I thought that he he helped Gene Kelly move through the movie he kind of he he helped ground Gene Kelly. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Well, and I love that they he always in the movies he was in he always seemed to play that sort of deadpanning yeah. guy, and it's perfect in this movie because right. you've got Gene Kelly coming home from falling in love with Lisa. Yeah, and uh, dancing on the piano. Yeah, and he's just kind of like straight faced playing it along yep. with him. You know. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He's a great presence in the movie. I, I think that um, Leslie Caron was. Mm-hmm. I, I mean. Spectacular. Mm-hmm. And I also love the woman that played Milo, who mm-hmm. is uh, Gene Her, Kelly's like sponsor. Yeah, yeah, in the movie. 
because she's given some of the very best lines in the whole movie. Oh, my God. I don't think they developed her character enough because at the end of the movie, they kind of ditch her as like the villain, which isn't fair to her. Uh -uh. But there's this great exchange that that Gene Kelly has with this character of Milo. And he he asks her – or he says, that's quite a dress you almost have on. And then he says, what holds it up? Modesty. Modesty. (laughs) Brilliant writing. I loved it. Yeah, that literally is one of my favorite lines. And that's one of the things I like about this movie so much is that a lot of times I feel like musicals only focus on the music and Mm -hmm. they forget about the writing. Mm -hmm. And by writing, I mean the dialogue. Um, the book. They'd call it yeah, the book. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And I think that while obviously there's not a super strong narrative that's tying together the whole movie, the writing is really good and yeah. it's really well done. And there's witty dialogue. And I I really enjoyed that. I, I was honestly surprised by how much I enjoyed the dialogue in the movie in addition to all the music. Yeah. And, you know, there's a couple little things that that occur in the script as well. When you first see Gene Kelly out on the street kind of hanging his paintings and Mm -hmm. talking to that pretentious art student. Right. And he tells her to, you know, go kick rocks. And then Milo comes up and she said, are you going to be as mean to me? And he starts talking about these art students and he says, they're always making profound observations that they've overheard. Yep. And it's just, it's such a little dig at critics. And, um, you know, I guess we're serving as critics right now, I so they're kind of taking so. a dig at us. But, yeah, yeah the writing is, is really sharp in places. Yeah. I remember when that scene happened, it literally made me think of the scene in Goodwill Hunting mm-hmm. when they're in the bar and uh, Matt Damon comes in and totally shows up the guy who's trying to impress the girl. And he's like, oh, are you, are you going to start quoting him now? Yeah. Well, who are you going to quote next? Right. Oh, yeah. Well, you could have gotten your entire Harvard education by reading the books out of the trash. Yeah, like, absolutely. And, and that's kind of what it felt like. I can understand disregarding perspective to achieve an effect. But in your case, Look, I honey, believe that... Why don't you be a good little girl and move on? You're not going to buy anything. You're just blocking out the sunshine. Well, I just wanted to discuss your work. I don't want you to discuss my work. I'm not interested in your opinion of my work. If you say something nice, it won't make me feel any better. And if you don't, it'll bother me. Thank you. Good day. (laughs) Do you uh, mind if I look or will you chew my head off too? No, go ahead. You're okay. Oh, thank you. She's one of those third-year girls that gripe my liver. Third-year girl? Yeah, you know, American college kids. They come over here to take their third year and lap up a little culture. They give me a swift pain. Why, they're harmless enough. They're officious and dull. They're always making profound observations they've overheard. At the end of the day, though, this is a Vincent Minnelli movie. You can see the stamp of the director all over this movie. And I want to talk about Minnelli for a little bit Mm -hmm. because he was a master director. He he directed a lot of musicals. Uh, I already mentioned... Meet Me in St. Louis, but he also uh, he did Brigadoon in 1954, Gigi in 1958. Right, but he was working all over the place. He did comedies, uh, Father of the Bride, the original. He did, uh, he did the original, yeah, with Spencer Tracy. That's such a great movie. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. it's beautiful. That was Vincent Minnelli. Uh, the Bad and the Beautiful with Kirk Douglas, 1952. He did Lust for Life, the uh, Vincent Van Gogh biopic in 1956. So he was he was really all over the place. That he was really obsessed with style. All of his movies, like you'll notice the color palettes right. and and just the attention to detail where everyone's blocked in the scene. And he does this great thing. I noticed it in Meet Me in St. Louis. Right. Which we're going to watch at some point. Okay. Judy Garland sings a song and she's looking out the window and the camera's outside the window. And so you have this like frame within a frame. And he does that here too. If you remember the scene where they first introduced Lisa. Right. 
they're talking about her and they pan over to this like mirror and it has this gilded edge on it. And so they have this really cool convention where he puts frames within frames to visually convey something. Yeah. It's a really interesting little flourish. Uh, But fun fact, Vincent Minnelli was not the only person to have a hand in directing this movie. Really? He actually was absent from set uh, for the development and the execution of the ballet sequence. Okay. And he had gone off to film the sequel to Father of the Bride. And so Gene Kelly actually acted as interim director. He had never done a movie at that point. Right. Now, he co-directed Singing in the Rain the next year. But you can definitely tell that some of these musical numbers that Kelly had a hand in making, uh, his stamp is all over them. The way that he conveys movement and uh, choreography. It's really cool to see the the stylistic differences between Minnelli and Gene Kelly, especially if you know to look for them. Right. Well, I'd also read that Gene Kelly actually directed the scene in which – the Frenchman who's in love with Lisa is talking about her different personalities mm-hmm. and they and she's kind of dancing in different, you know, to express the different yes. personalities that she has. That was actually Gene Kelly directing that. It was. And part of the reason people can pick up on that is because he did a movie a few years before called On the Town with okay. Frank Sinatra. Yeah. And there's an almost identical number in that movie uh, where they're talking about the female lead and, yeah. and daydreaming about her. So, yeah. yeah, he almost replicated that huh. for this movie. There you go. So, Brad, what else stuck out to you when you look at visually what's going on in this movie? What didn't? Yeah. I Like you, like you were saying about color palette, I think one of the best parts of this movie – is that it portrays Paris as this vibrant, bright city mm-hmm. um, in which you can find any number of emotions and passions and excitements um, around any corner. Yeah. Uh, and and with any audience, whether you're singing and dancing with children or with the woman that you love or with the woman who's your patron and, yeah. and supporting you, that that there's all of these different avenues for excitement and romance and the, yeah, the movie just is over the top in all of the best ways. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you kind of see it come out a little bit, too, in the costuming. And I know I mentioned Gene Kelly's kind of just painterly outfit. But even at the end of the movie where they go to the Beaux-Arts ball, um, you see what Milo is wearing, which is this kind of like sexy outfit. Right. And then you see Lisa, who's in almost like a bridal type gown. Yeah. And it really is a foreshadowing. And so Minnelli yeah. had his hand in so many of these little details to convey what was going to happen with the story. Yeah. I, yeah, it's funny the, that final scene when, uh, when Lisa's leaving and it's after that ball mm-hmm. and, and all that's happening at the only thing that threw me off the entire movie was I can't, what's the Frenchman's name? Uh, Henri. Henri. Yeah. So when Henry is, uh, he just <laughs> they, call him, they call him Hank a couple times too. Oh, do, yeah, yeah, they do. Oscar LeBaron's like, oh, Hank, what's up? Yeah, we'll call him Hank. We'll call him Hank. So when Hank <laughs> realizes that his soon-to-be bride is in love with this American guy that he's kind of friends with, mm-hmm. he's just kind of like, oh, okay, wee oui, wee, oui, take yeah. her away. Right. That was the only part of the movie that I was just kind of like, you could tell that that they had run out of. <laughs> yeah time or film or something because yeah. there's literally i remember i was watching this movie uh on the computer and so my, i was kind of hovering over how long time the time had elapsed right, right. when that ballet ends there's literally like 45 seconds left in the movie yeah including the like the end card yeah the ballet is over and then all of a sudden you see her running out of the car they hug movie's over yeah. you don't get any that's it decision making on uh, hank's part right 
Yeah, I mean, I think in the end that this movie, it was built to display two things in my mind when I got done watching it. Mm -hmm. It was built to display Gene Kelly and his dancing prowess. Sure. And it was built to display the Gershwin's music. Yep. Yep. And it did that perfectly. Absolutely. Uh, The entire movie uh, strung along those two things and you just were mesmerized by the music and the way that Kelly interpreted that music through dance. Uh, It was spectacular. Let's talk about that a little bit because as good as the writing is of Mm -hmm. the book – the best scenes in the movie are the musical yeah, numbers, you know, and that's, that's sure. going to be the case with any Gene Kelly movie. What was a scene, Brad, that that stuck out to you as the best in the film? Man, that's, um, you know, I enjoyed the, what is it, an 18 minute finale? Mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed that. But the movie was long enough that by the time I got to that point, I was like, OK, more dancing. Yeah. And yeah. it just kept going and and not in the sense that I didn't enjoy it. It was fascinating, but I don't remember it super well. OK. Um, I honestly enjoyed the scene when he is in the club with his patron. Mm-hmm. And when she leaves for a minute, he goes off immediately to Lisa and is talking to her. Interesting. I loved that scene. That was the most problematic scene in the whole movie for me. Really? And I think I'll I'll hold off on talking about it till we get into the more of the analysis yeah. part. But especially in hashtag me too era. Yeah. He's really creepy in that scene. And she even says, like, I don't want you around. And yeah. then he says something like, I haven't done anything like this, at least not as a civilian. And I'm like, what did you do when you were in the military, bro? Like yeah. that oh, red flags all over the place for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can get into that now if you want to. I I I don't know. I thought that that scene I mean, what is creepiness? You know, is it in the eye of the beholder? Because uh, if she really likes <laughs> him, know, which man. she does, it's not creepy. But if somebody's yeah. trying to come on to you and you don't like them at all, then it becomes more creepy. I, I don't know. I I really enjoyed that scene a lot. Yeah, I just found that it definitely made Jerry's character a little bit less likable for me. Huh. Um, just Just a little bit of creeper mentality going the, on there the main thing for me that led to that was that she was cl- so much clearly younger than him yeah which yeah, is yeah. typical of the era which is creepy too because then you have Henri saying like oh i basically raised her like my daughter and now that, that now that she's 18 we can totally get married yeah <laughs> like, that to no. me was the creepiest part yeah when he sure. said he's like she was like my daughter i protected her yeah. and then i want to marry her yeah i don't which know which is part of what makes me so attracted to the character of Milo as an independent woman yeah. among this whole, like, yeah, two creepy dudes, <laughs> which really have Lisa in a bad spot because yeah. she's stuck with Henri. But yeah. she goes to Gene Kelly and he's like totally fine with doing God knows what in a club. But he but she really likes him. She does eventually. Yeah. But then you've got Milo who's held up as. People are intimidated by me because I have money and right. I can make things happen. Right. And not only do I have money, but I have confidence. For sure. And when you have confidence and money, people are afraid of them, whether you're a man or a woman. But I think with her being a woman, people give her this unfair assessment of, I, I don't know, being power hungry or yeah. power trip. And I don't think that's fair. She just has money and she knows what she wants and that's okay. Yeah. I really liked her character and I felt yeah. like they did a disservice to her at by, the very end. by almost killing her off. You know what yeah. I mean? It was just kind of like Gene, Gene Kelly finally has the guts to say, look, I, I've been leading you on. It's not fair to you. Right. Um, and then you just don't see her anymore. Yeah. And 
Look, it's not you. It's, it's established me. that she has done this with people before. Yeah. Like she has boy toys that she right. keeps around. But it's also very clear that this one's different. She really likes Gene Kelly. Right. Um, and I just thought they did her a disservice. Yeah. So my favorite scene in the film is definitely the I Got Rhythm number. Yeah. That Kelly sings with the kids. And we've touched on this a little bit. But there is just so much joy contained in that scene where you have Kelly doing all these different uh you know, dance moves. He does the Charleston. He does the sidestep. Right. But yep. when he gets to that part at the end where he's doing the airplane down the street. Oh, yeah. It's just it puts a smile yeah. on my face every time. Yeah. There's so much joy contained in that four to five minute scene. Yeah. That just. Yeah. It overflows in everything. And the funny thing about it is that's probably the least essential scene to the plot. Because yeah. he's not singing about his love interest. Yeah. He's literally just it's a it's a musical number for the sake of having he's, a musical. He's number. establishing the fact that he's a dancer and yeah. singer. Like <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And yet for me, it's, best scene in the whole movie. Yeah, I, I would agree with you there. It's definitely one of the best scenes. And I, I think that man, you just yeah, you just see the joy and fun that mm-hmm. that it is to be a part of a musical. There are a couple other scenes that I want to touch on before we move on to our whiskey segment. Because I think mm-hmm. that there's a few scenes in this movie that are really like a microcosm for the right. whole thing. The number, the embraceable you number, where they're dancing by the riverbank. Yeah. Um, it's it's Leslie Caron. Oh, I'm sorry. The embraceable you number is is Leslie Caron's first number when Henri is describing her. Oh, and they're okay. looking into the mirror. Yeah. That's actually it, – it tips off everything else about the movie because there's this extensive use of color, yeah. which you're going to get um, – You've got this sort of big brash music at some points, but you've got this really sweet ballet yeah. tinge to it as well. Yeah. And I think this movie blends those styles. So because Gene Kelly, for all of his classical training, was not really doing ballet on screen very often. No. So that one stuck out to me. And then there's the scene where Gene Kelly comes home uh, and they do the tra la la number where he's dancing on the piano with yeah. Adam. And that scene, I think, is a microcosm for me because you get both of those characters at their most uh, um, extensive use of themselves. Like right. Gene Kelly is is at most, maximum capacity. Yeah. And Adam is just drawl and deadpan. Yeah. But you also get this really interesting thing, which I think we'll talk about later. Vincent Minnelli, uh, we, we all know at this point that, that he was basically living a double life. While he right. was married to Judy Garland, he was gay. And uh, you get this really interesting sort of like homoerotic imagery in this movie. And I don't see in other Hollywood films, especially of this era, where you've got two guys that are getting really close to each other uh-huh. physically. It happens in the uh, Swanderful number. It happens here where they almost touch faces. They get really, really close to hmm. to almost being in a romantic sort of shot. Yeah. And I thought it was amazing that, first of all, they could sneak that past the censors in 1951. Right. But I do think that Minnelli's stamp on this movie, yeah. uh, you can see it coming through in the way he frames men in these images. Yeah. And it's a way that more sort of butch straight guy directors wouldn't have done it. Right. And I think it actually enhances the movie because it lends this air of romanticism to the whole city, to the whole proceedings yeah. that are going on. Yeah, I th- that whole conversation uh I have lots of thoughts going through my brain. <laughs> um try yeah, trying to organize it all in my head, but I I'm I'm curious if I my first thought is this. I didn't pick up on any sort of those tendencies. Oh, interesting. That, you know, with the men being close together and things like that. And I don't know if that's just because I've grown up in a generation that is more accepting of homosexuality sure. than was the 1930s, 40s, 50s. Um, 
But yeah, that that's really interesting to me. I, I don't know if I would have ever picked up on that without you pointing it out. And I think part of it is that the audience to this point in 1951 had built so much trust in Gene Kelly. Yeah. He's one of the first people that you see on screen dancing with another man and not another woman. It's not just in this movie. It happens in On the Town. Huh. So audiences were feeling comfortable kind of going wherever Gene Kelly went with yeah. things. And I think Minnelli – I don't think that he was purposely trying to frame things in this way, right. but he's able to express men in this sort of more lovely, romanticized way yeah. without this veneer of, I have to be macho. Yeah, and I think that that is an extremely healthy outlook to have um, because I think that there's something beautiful about humans loving one another. Sure. In a non-romantic uh, way, in a, in a non- the Platonic. Yeah, in a sure. platonic fashion. Sure. Yeah. That when two men or two women or a man and a woman are able to love each other in a platonic fashion where they truly care for the other, mm -hmm. where they truly want the best for the other person, that it doesn't have to be romantic. It doesn't have to be sexual. Right. Um, and so I think that, if anything, that, that that's a, a really phenomenal way to help introduce that to the public conscience in showing that men could dance together and have it, A, not be sexual – and right. B, be a genuine outpouring of emotion that's acceptable for two men to show sure. with each other. I do think there's a reading of this movie. If we were in like grad school yeah. and doing film studies, I do think there's a reading of this movie that could see all of that thing, all of those images as sexual. Okay. I don't know if it's intended that way. Yeah. But um, I, I just think it's worth noting that the way that they put male bodies on screen in this movie is different than what you're going to see in a classical Hollywood movie right. for sure. Well, Brad, I don't know about you. But I'm ready to drink some bourbon. I kind of had a feeling you were going to say that. Let's do it. Let's do it. So, Brad. So, Bob. Here we are. Here we are. Sipping on another whiskey yet another week. Yeah. This week, we are trying out Evan Williams' White Label. Yeah. Also known as Bottled in Bond. So, Bottled in Bond is actually a legal distinction. Ooh. You have to meet – it's actually – you have to meet the most legal requirements of any kind of whiskey to be called Bottled in Bond. Huh. So uh, it has to be aged four years. Okay. And it has to go into the bottle at 100 proof. So it's a little older than very old Barton. It's older than very old Barton last week. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's a little bit higher proof. So we're going to definitely feel the burn as we sip on this one. Uh, what did you notice, Brad, on the nose of this? You know, I right away, I didn't feel like it was quite as strong uh, smelling as the last few weeks uh, as far as like the ethanol yeah. coming through. It's mellowed out a little yeah, bit. Yeah, it's mellowed a little more. Maybe this isn't fair to the other bourbons, but when taking a nose at this, you also take a look at it. And the color on this is – I really like the color on this whiskey a lot. I think it's a good – um, caramely looking mm -hmm. bourbon. Uh, but yeah, the nose was great. I thought it had some kind of caramely, um, almost syrupy smells to it. That yeah. I you definitely get a ton of caramel. Like it, yeah. And almost a little bit of like a chocolate with it as well. It almost smells like if you were to eat, you know, a chocolate yeah. covered caramel out of the box. Yeah. Really sweet smelling. Um, I actually picked up a little bit of like a citrus on my, when I first poured it as well, maybe a mm. lemon. But I don't taste the citrus in it yeah. as much. I definitely just get those more robust, rounded, sweet notes. Right. On the taste, when I drank it, man, it it burned from the time it hit my tongue to after I swallowed it. It is definitely very spicy. Yeah. But it isn't bitter. It isn't sour. Which leads me to believe that it's it's weeded, 
which would just mean a, a weeded bourbon just means, okay, bourbon has to be 51% corn. Weeded means the wheat would be the second most ingredient in okay. it. And on the finish, it doesn't leave a lot in your mouth, which some people will hate because they want a lasting finish. Right. Yeah. Um, I I don't know, though. I, I didn't feel like it was that um, strong of a burn myself. Okay. I felt like it kind of sat on the palate smoothly. Sure. Um, it went down smoothly. There was definitely a burn. I mean, it's 100 proof. You can't get away from that. Yeah. Um, but in our preview episode, we talked about James E. Pepper, and I thought that had a stronger burn going down. Oh, for even sure. Though I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah. Um, I thought that had a stronger burn than this did, both being at 100 proof. That's right. why I compare them. They're both 100 proof. Now, I added a couple of drops of water to mine to try to unlock a little bit more flavor from this. And, you know, it really just upped the ante with the caramel hmm. flavors. Yeah. Caramel, uh, maybe a little bit of butterscotch, but it, this is a very sweet bourbon, especially for 100 proof. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's very tasty. I thought it balanced out very well. Um, between the first smell to the final uh, finish, I yeah. thought that it was a well-balanced bourbon. How'd you score this one, Bob? So I gave it a five on the nose. Okay. Gave it a six on the taste. I gave it a six on the finish, and I gave it a seven Ooh. on the balance, which would put me up at a twenty-four. Yeah, I gave this a six and a half across the board. Mm. Which puts it at a 26. 26, which puts us at an average of a 25. Yeah. I will say that even though I, I scored them the same, I like this whiskey better yeah. than the very old Barton from last week. Yeah. You can tell it's there's a little bit more complexity to it. You can tell it's aged longer. Like the, the mouthfeel of it is a little bit more viscous. Mm-hmm. Um, would can you, you explain what the word viscous means, Bob? Yeah, like viscosity. It's 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 more syrupy. It's thicker. I like it's not when as you thin in your... describe the word viscous by saying it's more viscosity. Which is the same word. <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't have noticed that. <laughs> so I paid seventeen dollars for okay. this bottle of bourbon for a fifth. So it is still on the lower end. Yeah. Uh, in in inexpensive. Anytime you can get a bottle of bourbon or whiskey that you enjoy, yeah. for under twenty dollars, yeah, you're set. Now, look, if you want to use this as a mixer, you can just because mm-hmm. there is so much alcohol in it. Right. You know, it's fifty percent alcohol. Uh, but I would not recommend doing that. I think no. this is a good sip in whiskey. Yeah, you can drink it, neat. it on its own, neat or with on the rocks, whatever you want. Absolutely. Yeah. Would you recommend it? I would recommend it, yeah. That's probably the first one that we've had this month that I would recommend. Very Old Barton, if you really want a good bottle of $10 whiskey, yeah. I'd say that. But for the price and for what you're getting, I think this white label is the winner so far. Yeah, I, I would wholeheartedly agree with you on that. Well, Brad, let's keep sipping on this and let's finish talking about An American in Paris. Let's get to it. So, An American in Paris was a huge success with audiences and critics alike. And yet, when the envelope was opened on Oscar night for right. Best Picture, this movie won out over movies that people thought were shoe-ins. Right. There were there was a big historical epic that year called Quo Vadis, and then uh, George Stevens' movie A Place in the Sun, which was the front runner for this award. Okay. And when the guy who was reading the uh, winner – off the envelope, announced an American in Paris. Before he said it, he goes, oh, dear. <laughs> an American in Paris. And I guess the reaction at the Oscars was very mixed. People huh. were upset about it. And part of it is because the producer of this movie had received like a, a lifetime award right. that night, too. And so a lot of people thought they were just doing lip service. To American in Paris? Yeah. Yeah. As a result. Honestly, 
I'm surprised this movie won Best Picture. Yeah. If I'm being 100% honest. It is not your typical Best Picture winner. Yeah. It seems a little bit too fluffy, like too slight. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. There, yeah, there's not a lot of stories supporting the music. No. If you think about it. And, and again, we, we commented on how the dialogue is really quick-witted and it's, yeah. it's visually, artistically breathtaking. Right. Um, but they have categories for that. Yeah, absolutely. So how did it win Best Picture? Sure. And also, this makes me think about how certain genres just get overlooked for Best Picture. Like you think about sci-fi. There's mm-hmm. never been a sci-fi winner of Best Picture that I can think of. I'm I'm struggling to think of one too. I don't know if there and, has been. And even like consideration, yeah, it, they rarely ever get any consideration. Sure. And it was it was surprising to me to find out that a musical won Best Picture because I just felt like musicals. I don't know. Does it? Do have you ever come across the stigma maybe that musicals aren't really real movies? Oh, absolutely. And there have been a few musicals that have won Best Picture. Obviously, um, you, know, you had Oliver in the '60s. There was yeah. some back in the '30s. This movie, I'm not sure. I don't remember if Gigi, which okay. Minnelli directed, but it's definitely the exception to the rule. Yeah. You know, and when La La Land had its big moment in the sun for <laughs> 15 seconds a couple years ago, yeah. that was a big moment for musicals. Yeah. There hadn't been one awarded since 2002 when Chicago won. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's definitely an overlooked category for sure, which leads me to question, Brad, what group of people do you think this movie was made for? Man, that's that's so hard, partially because, you know, I was born in 1990. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but I look back at, and I just feel like this is this is an everyman's movie. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's made for the common person. In one sense, this is the Marvel Avengers blockbuster <laughs> of the 1950s. Yeah, it definitely is is casting its nets wide. Right. But what I love about it is that even though they're appealing to everyone with yeah. Gene Kelly dancing with kids and, you know. Yeah. At the same time, Minnelli is really doing his best to kind of get you to think artistically and think high-minded. And, you know, you're immersed in the art world of Paris throughout this movie. Yeah. You're watching ballet. You know, it's things that the American public generally wouldn't gravitate towards. Right. But it's kind of hidden under these layers of good old-fashioned American musical. Yeah. Well, and it also – I think it would also connect with a lot of people who – you know, fun fact, fought in World War Two. Yeah. But they could they could associate with, you know, a guy who had been in Paris and fell in love with the city and, and the people in the city and Yeah. This is Paris. And I'm an American who lives here. My name's Jerry Mulligan, and I'm an ex GI. In nineteen forty five, when the army told me to find my own job, I stayed on. And I'll tell you why. I'm a painter. All my life, that's all I've ever wanted to do. And for a painter, the mecca of the world for study, for inspiration, and for living is here on this star called Paris. Just look at it. No wonder so many artists have come here and called it home. Brother, if you can't paint in Paris, you better give up and marry the boss's daughter. So the movie has so many different qualities and characteristics that could attract to so many different people in America yeah. at that time. Absolutely. Do you think that there is a sort of lesson or moral going on underneath the surface here? Or is it just kind of your standard romance movie? You know, I, I think that we viewing the movie can search for meaning mm-hmm. um, like we kind of already have with uh, 
his patron and her search for meaning and her search for love sure. as a mom- as a woman with means and you know money and confidence and power. So you, you could look into themes such as that. You could look into some of the themes that we talked about with Vincent Minnelli being um, gay and the the way he portrays masculinity. Sure. But in the end, I don't think that. Yeah, I don't know if there's a, a huge underlying message yeah. here. I do think that there's definitely a streak in this movie, though, of really sad sadness kind okay. of permeates this movie. And you don't think about it on the surface because it's big and bright and, right. and a musical. Um, but you see a lot about people's dreams yeah. and not having them fulfilled. Right. You know, Gene Kelly is a really down on his luck artist. Oh, and sure. the implication in the movie is that he's not good. Yeah. You know, and Milo is supporting him and everyone just knows Milo's supporting him because she's attracted to him. Yeah. So, you know, and Gene Kelly is like, hey, it's an honest living. But the implication is he's not any good at it. Right. Lisa really wants to break free uh, from what she feels is being sort of bound to Henri. Right. And he's the only one that's really living out his dream. And at the end of the movie, he doesn't get what he wants either. And yeah. so everyone kind of misses out on what they're shooting for. You've got that really interesting fantasy sequence where Adam is smoking a cigarette and thinking yeah. about playing the piano concerto right. and everybody on stage is him. Yeah. And he's the only one giving himself a standing ovation at the right. end. It's, it's really, it's kind of sad when you think about these people floating around Paris are kind of these lone wolves and kind of struggling to find community and find relationship in that. Yeah. And in the end, the only ones who really find it are Leslie Caron and sure. Gene Kelly. Sure. That they find it with each other, that they do kind of break free of where they're at. But in the end, Gene Kelly's still a down on his luck painter. Yeah. And and isn't it interesting that they're portrayed as people who are already dependent on others? Yeah. Like he's relying on Milo's money yeah. to make it through. And she's been relying on the hospitality of Henri the whole time. Yeah. And so in order to kind of grow up a little bit, they both have to break three, free of these things that are holding them back. All right. So, Brad, I want to talk for a minute about Gene Kelly in this movie. He is an actor that he, is in he this is. movie. I want to talk about the creepiness a little bit. Okay. I know we mentioned it before. Yeah. But uh, when he first runs into Lisa. Right. At the uh, – I didn't want to call it a cafe. At the club, whatever yeah. you call it. Um, he goes up to her table. He kind of ingratiates himself. He like puts himself in that group that right. doesn't want him there. He waits till she's away from the group mm-hmm. to kind of swoop in. And I just found it really predatory. Yeah. He, she even says, I want to go back to my table. And he holds her there and says, in a minute. Yeah. I understand that the standards for how men pursued women were different in that time. Right. And that in the context of the movie, you know he's a good guy because you've seen him dancing with kids. Right. That doesn't, in my mind, make that behavior okay. So if the entire movie had been shot from Lisa's perspective, yeah. that moment would be... Fill in the blank. Well, so here's the thing. We know Lisa's character motivations, right? Yeah. We know that she's already looking to break free from Henri. Right. And so then that makes it okay in the context of the movie. But what I'm saying is like if you're just a guy coming off the street and that's how you behave towards women, like you don't know that that's yeah. the situation. And that doesn't make that behavior okay in my mind. Yeah. I I just keep going back to that whole – She, you know, she basically is accusing him of – taking advantage of her. And then he says, yeah, I haven't done this, at least not as a civilian. And that line yeah. really bothered me as yeah. I watched this movie. That line does. Yeah. That line is not good. It doesn't come across well. No, it doesn't finish. Well, it definitely doesn't hold up. Doesn't hold up. 
Um, but I, hmm, I, I think there could be something charming about his persistence. Yeah. And, yeah. and that, that and it really mean, just depends on if you're attracted to that. Or right. Not. Yeah. And if, if she genuinely wasn't attracted to that based on Gene Kelly's character, you would hope that he would move on. Right. But he's really taken by this girl. Sure. And so you, you look at it and you go, I think part of it is just the movie ideal of love at first sight. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think that that happens as often in real life as it might be portrayed in the movies. Now, I will say the follow-up scene where he, like, goes to her job, where she's spraying perfume on people. Yeah. That came across to me as more charming and more... Cute, playful. Yeah, absolutely. But that opening (laughs) bit where he's just saying, this is what I want and I'm going to take it. Right. It just... Well... In today's era, it doesn't hold up at all. The the question is, though, when you said, this is what I want and I'm going to take it, what did he want? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I think... I think the issue that we see a lot of times today is that we assume that the men just want to have sex with the women. Sure. And so they're pushing to get that. Whereas I think with this, he's probably pushing to get her number or where she works to talk to her, however they communicated back in the day. Well, sure. That's what he was looking to get. And so that's why for me, it didn't come across quite as poorly Mm -hmm. um, because I don't think he was trying to seduce her. I think he was trying to get her number. Sure. Yeah. So it, it kind of just as we close this part of the podcast, yeah. let me just say public service announcement from the guys here at Film and Whiskey. Yes. Just don't be a creep. Yeah. You know, don't be an idiot. General life lesson. Yeah. <laughs> so, Brad, I want to talk a little bit about how this movie has held up over the years, because for a long time, this was held up as the premier MGM musical. Right. So in the 1970s, when the studio system had already pretty much fallen apart, MGM released this movie called That's Entertainment. Okay. And it was literally just compilation movie of all of their musicals. Huh. And so they'd play clips. And it was released theatrically, and all the clips were introduced by the old actors from back in the day. The very last number in the movie was the closing segment from American in Paris. They saved that as the crowning achievement from MGM musicals. Right. And the funny thing is that it's kind of fallen out of fashion since then. Yeah. Singing in the Rain is always kind of held up as the best American musical now. Right. And so have you seen Singing in the Rain? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which would you prefer? Singing in the Rain. And why? I don't know. There's something about American in Paris mm-hmm. that I like it. Yeah. But there is something that like halfway through the movie I realized I was like. It's I, good. I, I it's would, fine. I would watch other musicals before yeah. I watch this. Yeah, I agree. It's it's very slow in parts. Yeah. Um, I don't think the characters are developed enough to really be too humorous. Yeah. It, there are parts of the movie where it definitely dragged on for me. Yeah. And I, I think maybe Singing in the Rain has a better story. Sure. And I, I think that – I truly think that story grabs at people's hearts and draws them in to to film. Yeah. And that's why we keep going back to movies over and over and over again. Yeah. Because we want to see a story being told that's not our own. And I will say this because Minnelli is a much better director – than Gene Kelly or Stanley Donnan, who right. did Singing in the Rain. This movie is more beautiful. Yeah. I think it has more moments where you really feel the beauty come through. Yeah. Um, technically, it's more proficient. The camera movement is right. better. Right. There are moments in Singing in the Rain where you see like jump cuts and yeah. like it's sloppy in parts. And I would still choose Singing in the Rain yeah. over this movie. I agree. Yeah. So, Brad, if you had to score this movie out of 10, where would you put it? I would give it. A seven and a half. Seven and a half. Yeah, it's a good watchable movie. It's something you should watch at least once. Sure. I think when you see it, you start to see 
um, its effects on other movies um, later on. But overall, yeah, I, I would give it a seven and a half. It's a, it's a good, solid movie. Look, I still think that it is among the best movie musicals of all time. Yeah. I, I don't think it's a perfect movie, but I'd still probably give it a nine. I mean, it's yeah. it's still here for a reason. Yeah. You still watch it for a reason. Vincent Minnelli and Gene Kelly, you really can't go wrong with right. that. So tell us what you think about An American in Paris. Were we correct? Were we off? Tweet at us. Is that even still the phrase? Tweet at us. Tweet at us. Do it. We're Do so it. cool and hip. Do a Twitter thing. Hop on Twitter. Get on the old Twitter. At Film Whiskey. Let us know what you think. Or give us a call. Leave a voicemail at 216-800-5923. That is 216-800-5923. We will be back next week as we review the 2009 Quentin Tarantino epic, Inglorious Bastards. Bastards. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this has been the Film, Film and Whiskey, Whiskey Podcast. Podcast.